0: we will please be seated. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to John uh, chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you left your Bible at home, or if you don't own a Bible, or ushers are coming up and down the aisle to pass out Bibles. This is our gift to you. If you don't own one, or you can just leave it at the table on your way out. If you just happen to leave yours behind. It happened in the middle of the woods on July the 5th in 2003. Some of our friends and family were sitting there on benches and uh, some of my friends who were musicians were playing uh, some uh, music, and that is, when it really, that is when it really hit me. That was when my uh, father-in-law was bringing Lindsay through the woods, down the, down the aisle. That was where it began to sink in. I mean, we had been engaged for months. All of this preparation had went into that moment, but it was, it was then that I realized this is, this is happening. That we are going to make these promises to, to one another, rich or poor, better, worse, sickness, health. That, that this was, was God's gift to me, this beautiful bride. That's when it began to sink in a, a few years later, November the 12th, 2008. And we're in the hospital and contractions are happening. And all of a sudden it sort of sinks in. Oh my goodness, like we're going to be parents. And it, it, we, had, we had, God always gives you like months to sort of prepare, right? But but. In that moment, it becomes real. Uh, Ten years ago, September 27, 2009, in the gym of William Gage School, and the, the chairs are being set, and the worship team is rehearsing, and the, the people are coming, and it's sort of, re- oh my goodness, this is happening. This church is, is starting, you know, whether it's, whether it's getting on a plane to leave your home country to move to another, or whether it's driving into the parking lot at your, your first job or whatever it may be. We all have these moments, don't we, where we're, we're realizing something we've been preparing for and getting ready for, and then all of a sudden, here it is. We all have those moments, don't we? In John chapter 12, the Lord Jesus has one of those moments. He has just entered into Jerusalem. He's orchestrated the whole thing. He comes in riding on a donkey so that the people can recognize the fulfillment of the prophecy made in Zechariah chapter nine. And they're crying out, Hosanna, which means save us. And they're calling him the King of Israel. And Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and he has one of those moments. He realizes that everything has been leading to this point. I'm going to begin reading in John chapter 12, I'm going to begin in verse 20, I'm going to read all the way to verse 36 to look at how did Jesus respond in this culminating moment. Verse 20 it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves this life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We see three things happening here in this this moment. Something related to the son, something related to the father, and something related to the witnesses. The crowd that are here at this moment in time when Jesus says, okay, the hour has come. Everything has been leading up to this moment. The first thing that that we can see from this passage is that at this hour, there is this culmination, this focus on the glorification of the Son. Jesus sees that all of his preaching and teaching, all of his miracles, has led up to this moment where he would be glorified. Now it's interesting, the catalysts, the ones who sort of uh, propel this moment... Into motion are the Greeks listed in verse 20. It says, now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The timing of their arrival couldn't be more perfect. I mean, the Pharisees who were trying to put Jesus to death, trying to suppress his popularity, had just said in the earlier verse, almost expressing hyperbole, had just said, I mean, the whole world is going after him. And then these Greeks... Show up in the very next verse. Now they're not necessarily from Greece. I don't know if they were carrying or concealing souvlaki at all. But the idea was that they weren't Jewish. They were from the outside world. And Jesus recognizes their arrival on the scene as the turning point. Because yes, Jesus is king of Israel. But he's also king of the world. He's our king. I mean, look at all the nations that are represented here. Jesus came to this hour for the whole world, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. They come to Philip. Now, Philip had a Greek-sounding name, and he came from Bethsaida, which was a border town, which was near lots of other Gentile towns. And so naturally they thought, you know, maybe we should talk to that Philip guy. Maybe he can act sort of as a cultural bridge for us as outsiders so that we can have an audience with the Jewish Messiah. And they ask him very politely, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now imagine if Philip in this moment said, you know what, I got this. What what questions do you have? You know what, let, 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 me, let me take you to, uh, to this place, you know, let, let, me, let me take you to some other teacher or some other, why don't you listen to this podcast, why don't you read this book? Uh, I've got some theological concepts or ideas that I'd like to share with you. I mean, heaven forbid that Philip would do that. Heaven forbid that we would do that. When you come here next week, you're not going to see the sign Harvest Bible Chapel, you're going to see the sign Hope Church, but listen, with, name Shmame, there's only one name that matters. We're not here to draw people to Harvest or draw people to Hope Church. We're here to draw people to Jesus. There's people all around us saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. In fact, in a, a number of churches where, where they have a lectern or a, or a pulpit where the, the Bible is held and the sermon sort of uses, the, the preacher uses that to hold his, his sermon notes, and a lot of those churches, if you go up and, and look on the lectern, that, this verse is quoted there, Sir We wish to see Jesus. Basically telling the preacher, make sure you don't get in the way. Take people to Jesus. And so Philip does what Philip does. He goes. He tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And then it's at this moment where Jesus says, the hour has come. Now we've talked a fair bit about how the Gospel of John fits quite neatly into two parts. Part one and part two. We talked about how at the conclusion of part one that there's a death and a resurrection. The death and resurrection of Lazarus. In the end of part two, obviously, there's a resurrection of Jesus. But there's so many parallels that, that point us to the fact that there are two parts. Remember back in John chapter one, it's Philip and Andrew who are the ones who initially learn about Jesus and they bring Peter to Jesus. They bring Nathaniel to Jesus. And so part one begins with, Philip and Andrew bringing people to Jesus. And now it's part two, and they're, bringing, they're doing what they do. They're bringing people to Jesus. And then Jesus says something quite interesting. He, now he says the hour has come. And this is something that's very distinct about part one and part two. All throughout part one, Jesus and the narrator keep saying, my hour hasn't come, his hour hasn't come. But now he says the hour has come. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, John chapter 2 when he's talking to his mother at the wedding of Canaan where there's that wine crisis, they ran out of wine, and Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. John 7.30, they wanted to arrest him, but the only explanation John can give, why couldn't they lay hands on him in that moment? It's because his hour had not come. Same thing in John 8.20, no one arrested him because his hour had not come. That's all part one. Now it's part two. And Jesus says, my hour has come. And then Jesus uses his favorite term to describe himself. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He calls himself the Son of Man. Some people wrongly understand this phrase that when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, this was him kind of being, you know, down to earth. I'm just like you guys. I'm, I, I'm just a regular guy. There is a sense. I mean, Jesus was 100% God and, and 100% man. But when Jesus says Son of Man, he's not really bringing himself down to earth. He's actually exalting himself up to heaven. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel, the prophet, does this incredible thing in chapter 7. He looks back at history and kind of retells it with with these images of beasts and animals. Retelling how these different empires had ruled and reigned. But then he not only looks back. He actually looks hundreds of years into the future and predicts with odd accuracy... The next two empires. So he, he, he begins by talking about the, the Babylonian Empire. And it's described as a lion with wings. And it's overtaken by this sort of awkward lopsided bear. And that's the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered the seemingly invincible Babylonians. And it was sort of awkward and lopsided because you had the, the Medes and the Persians. And it was, it, it was this weird hybrid of, of, of two empires. And then they were replaced by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And it was, Alexander the Great m- moved quickly like a leopard. And so he's described in Daniel 7 like a leopard. And after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four regions. And so the leopard has four heads. And then after the leopard comes this strange beast. And, and it has all of these horns, ten horns. And that's the Roman Empire. And after this description of on earth, of all of these earthly beasts and how they rule and how they reign, then Daniel 7 shifts from earth and beasts to heaven. And then after all of the discussion of these beasts, in Daniel 7 we're given a picture of a man. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came, to, came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel had retold a little bit of history with the Babylonians and the medo Persians. He had predicted history with the Greeks and the Romans. These different kingdoms. These kingdoms that had been destroyed. But then he says, there's a son of man coming From heaven. And he will have a kingdom which will not pass away. And he came. When did he come? During the the rule of the Roman Empire. The last beast in Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus here, when he says he's the son of man, he's saying I am the one who's going to replace all of the empires of human history. And I am not just going to rule over one geopolitical area. No, I am going to rule over over the whole earth, all peoples, nations, and languages will serve me. So Jesus, and using the Son of Man, he's showing who he truly is. And he says, this is the time. This is the hour for me to be glorified. And what we would expect him to do in the next moment would be like, okay, everybody, everybody, everyone bow down before me. Okay? Someone take me to the palace, I need to get on my throne now, and now's the time for me. That's what we would think glorified means. Glorified means to praise or to worship, to lift up or to exalt. But what Jesus says next is is so, it's jarring. He uses this, this metaphor to describe his glorification. He says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus says that he's going to be like a grain of wheat that, that gets buried in the ground. That's going to die, but that in his death he is going to bear much fruit. He's not going to be one seed that's just kept on its own and stored in a barn. No, that seed is going to go into the darkness, into the ground, into the discomfort. But that as that seed is dying, it is going to produce fruit. And God is going to cultivate this glorious field of grain from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. But it's going to start with the sacrifice of one seed, with the burial, with the planting Of that one seed. So when he talks about his glorification, he he doesn't talk about when he's worshiped in the book of Revelation. He talks about when he's crucified on a Roman cross. See, when Jesus talks about glorification, it's really this multifaceted idea. Yes, it involves his ultimate exaltation, but it also involves his crucifixion and his resurrection. The whole thing is his glory. The whole thing reveals the greatness of his kingship. And then he universalizes it, not just to his own life. In verse 25 he says, Whoever whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He talks about if we love our life versus if we hate our life in this world. Now we don't need to be confused about love and hate. Jesus isn't saying that we should have contempt for our lives. He's not, he's not advocating here for self-loathing or self-hatred. This is an idiom in terms of choice. That one must be more important than the other. And he says, he says something quite troubling. He says, if you love your life, you will lose it. There's a lot of things to be afraid of in our world. Afraid of suffering. Afraid of death. Uh, a number of things that really can consume us and cause us great concern. But Jesus says, if we love our life, if we try to preserve and protect ourselves from the hard things in this world, if we're so afraid of being destroyed, self-preservation guarantees destruction. But that if we hate our lives in this world. Again, living in the system of this world, not just hating the fact that we have breath in our lungs or have a soul, but if we choose rather to forego the things, the comforts of this world, it says that we will have eternal life. We will keep it for eternal life. In verse 26, he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Jesus says if you're going to be one of his disciples, you've got to follow him. And if you're going to follow him, you need to go where he is going. Now we don't hear from the Greeks again. I'm, I'm guessing that the Greeks are overhearing this because there is a crowd gathered around Jesus at this time. And I think Jesus is clarifying what he did in other places. He's clarifying the cost of discipleship. If you're going to follow me, you've got to go where I go. I'm a grain of wheat. I'm going into the ground. I'm going to die. If you are going to follow me, like he said in other places, you must take up your cross and follow me. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you focus on eternal life, you will, you will gain eternal life. He says, if you... Serve me, you'll follow me. Jesus was going to the cross. He's telling us that if we're going to follow him, he's going to a place of suffering and death and pain and shame and anguish. And if we are going to follow him, we are going to the same place. And if we try to preserve our lives, that will lead in ultimate destruction. But if we give our lives, if we sacrifice, then we gain eternal life as we follow him who sacrificed for us us. Now just think about this. Think about what your relationships would look like. Think about how you would relate to your parents. Think about how you would relate to your spouse or to your friends or to your children if you approach your relationships not focused on your life in this world and getting things from these relationships so that you can feel better about yourself, but rather dying to yourself and trying to serve others, going into the ground so that you can produce fruit in the lives around you. How would that change your relationships? How would that change the way you think about work? Are you just trying to accumulate things and get things done so that you can love your life in this world? Or are you living and saving and giving and spending in such a way that you are focused on eternity? What would it look like if we were to live by these principles? Jesus says, if anyone follows me, he will be where I am. If we follow Jesus, we will end up where Jesus ended up. We will end up at the cross. But Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose to glorious life. So look at how he finishes at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we do. We follow him to the cross, loved ones, but we also follow him to glory. We follow him to eternal life. We follow, we, he, he is the one who deserves all of the credit and the honor. But if we simply follow Jesus and align ourselves with him and trust in him and believe in him, then we get the honor that only he deserves. This is what Jesus has made possible for us. Think about it: the honor of the Father. We we spend a lot of our time trying to find honor that make our parents proud or have our peer group approve of us or our teachers give us good grade we want to have honor we we pursue fame and notoriety but you know what we just we live in such a fickle world i mean just as you pay attention to anyone who has any Amount of fame in our world, you know what? I'm beginning to understand that as our culture, we have more fun tearing down people than we do actually lifting them up. It's it's almost just a matter of time when someone becomes famous and then all of a sudden they say something or do something and then there's just this immediate reaction to tear them down. Listen, the honor of the Father is not like that. The Father is not fickle. He can't lie, he can't go back on any of his promises. If he has said, that his servants receive honor, then it will always be that way. It will always be that way. So Jesus talks about the glorification of the Son, and it's quite surprising because he, he's referring to his death. And then Jesus also gives us a window into how he's feeling at this moment. And it's at this moment where we see the confirmation of the Father. The confirmation of the Father. We're actually gonna hear the Father's voice speak from heaven, but before that, we hear Jesus in verse 27 say, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Save me from this hour. Jesus is at this culminating moment. But at this moment in time, he is troubled, It's interesting that as you study the life of Jesus of Nazareth and compare him to some of the other notable people in history who ended up being being killed or executed, Jesus didn't seem to handle his impending death as well as some of the other historical figures. Other people who, when they know they're being executed, they sort of have this stern, stoic resolve, show very little emotion. Jesus, on the other hand, says, my soul is troubled. The other gospel writers tell, tell a story of Jesus going to a place called Gethsemane, and he's sweating drops of blood. He's asking that the cup would be taken, and John doesn't retell that story, but we get the essence of that story right here in John 12. His soul was troubled. Now, why is it that the Son of God, God in flesh, why is it that he would seem to handle death Worse than some of these other mere human figures in history. That's because Jesus' death went far deeper than the nails that went through his hands and his feet. Jesus was not concerned necessarily about the cross or about the scourging or, or about all of those things. And from a human level, he no doubt would have been wondering, how is that going to feel? But that's simply on a human level. On Think about it on a God level. For all of eternity, Jesus as the Son of God had always existed in a loving and perfect, harmonious relationship with the Father. That had never been broken. But at this hour, he was going to take the punishment and bear the wrath, the righteous anger of God for. Every sin that I have committed, and that you have committed, and that all of us have committed, and the whole world. He was going to. He had lived in perfect harmony with the Father. And perfect love going back and forth within the context of the Trinity for all of eternity. But at this hour, he was going to bear the wrath of God. He who knew no sin was going to become sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 and because of that, his soul was troubled. He says, what shall I say? Save me from this hour. But then he realizes all of, it's all for this purpose. He says at the end of verse 27, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus was living a life for, on a specific mission. He was born to die. All the miracles, all of the teaching. It was all for the purpose of this moment. And then he says in verse 28 Father, glorify your name. Jesus here gives us a really helpful model for what we are to do when we come to the hour in our lives. What do we say? When it's so unbearably difficult, we don't know what to do. What do we say when, when, we're, when we're struck with the suffering of one of our own children, our own flesh and blood? What do we say when we get the call back from the doctor that, like, within an hour after just a routine test? What do we say when our finances fall apart right before our eyes? What do we say when our core relationships are being torn apart? What do we say when we come to the hour? We say what Jesus said. We don't always know what the right way forward is. Jesus knew, but we don't always know. We don't always know how it's going to turn out. We don't, always, we don't know what's going to happen. But we can pray what Jesus prayed. God, what I'm going through right now, I pray that you would help me to bring glory to your name. And we are journeying right now as elders with a number of people who are going through things that are absolutely unimaginable. And the recurring theme that's resounding in all of these conversations is that we just want God to be glorified in this situation. That's the only thing that is getting them through it. It's the only thing that can get us through the hour. That's what got Jesus through. He knew his purpose. His purpose was to bring glory to God. That's his prayer request. And it's amazing how quickly his prayer request is answered. The words are just barely out of his mouth. And it says in verse 28, Then a voice came from heaven. Sometimes we wonder why our prayers aren't being answered. Well, maybe we're not praying that God would glorify his name. That if we would get a focus on God's glory and reorient why we're here on earth and why we might be going through these struggles, rather than just praying, God, help me escape, and start praying, God, help me to glorify you, would we begin to see more immediate answers to prayer in our lives? And he says, I have glorified it. All through Jesus, life and ministry, the miracles and the teaching. And then he says, and I will glorify it again. It's the confirmation of the Father. The crowd, though, doesn't really know how to respond in this moment. It says, the crowd that stood there and heard it, said it, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Everybody heard something. They all heard the same sound, and everyone tried to filter it through their own categories of understanding. Some people were open to the idea that that was an angel's voice. Other people, though, just thought that there must be some natural explanation for that. Our God is a God who speaks. He has spoken. He is speaking. You may not count on him speaking to you, you calling out to you but from heaven like he did to his son. But he's always speaking. And I just want to warn you that you're just not passing it off as "Ah, it was probably just thunder. God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through circumstances. He speaks to us through nature. And sometimes we can just cast it all aside. Rather than putting it together and actually stopping and listening, we just say, oh, it just must have been thunder. Don't do that. Don't be like the crowd. Speaking of the crowd, Jesus is now going to answer some of their questions. We've seen the the glorification of the Son and the confirmation of the Father. And thirdly, we're going to see the the confusion of the crowds. And maybe you're here today. and I mean, you've been coming to church for a little while. And you, you just got some questions. You're not putting it all together. And I just say, don't dismiss because you don't necessarily understand. Continue to seek. That's why, that's why our church exists. So that more people can know what it means to follow Jesus. We see the confusion of the crowds. Jesus says in, in verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That would, that would have been confusing for them. Because when they were saying, God, save us. Hosanna. What they meant was, save us from Rome. They were expecting Jesus to say, now is the ruler of Rome to be cast out. That's not what he says. Jesus says, you've got bigger problems than Rome. He says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. There is a spiritual battle that Jesus is about to have victory in. He's going to cast out Satan. From his place of ruling the world. And this is how he's going to do it. In verse 32 he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now oftentimes, we quote this verse in the context of a worship service. And we say, okay, we're all here to lift up the name of Jesus. And as we lift up the name of Jesus, we're we're going to hope that God would draw people from all over to him. We're going to lift him up in praise. But we need to read the next verse. So often, accurately interpreting the Bible is just as simple as reading the next verse. Verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When he said lifted up, he was referring to the fact that the, he would be laid on the ground on two pieces of wood, and then hammers would be, nails would go through his hands and through his feet, and then through a pulley system, the Roman soldiers would lift him up on the cross where he would suffocate to death. That's what he meant. But the crowd was confused because that word lifted up, they knew what he meant. But they also knew that lifting up, similar to the way he was using glorification. He talks about being glorified, but he means he's talking about his death. Now he's talking about being lifted up, but he's talking about the cross. They were confused because they were looking forward to a Savior who's described in Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. And so the the, the crowd, they were expecting a Savior who was lifted up, but they knew Jesus meant lifted up not in that way, but in being lifted up on a cross. But again, good biblical interpretation is as simple as just reading the next verse. Isaiah 52, 13 is the end of that chapter, and the beginning of Isaiah 53, the next chapter, again, you just keep reading. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the reason why we lift up Jesus in praise is because he was lifted up on the cross. But the crowd was confused by this. They knew he meant the cross. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They're saying, we've read the Old Testament. The Old Testament says that when the Messiah comes, he's going to reign forever. But you're talking about being lifted up on a cross. It's the confusion. that They don't know what's happening. They were talking about passages like 2 Samuel 7, 13, where David was promised that one of his offspring would rule forever. Or that famous Christmas passage, Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born and a son is given. The government's going to be on his shoulders. And he'll reign on the throne of his father David forever. So they couldn't understand. How could could the Christ reign forever if he's going to be crucified how can he be the daniel 7 son of man that will replace the roman empire and that will rule from sea to sea how can he do that if the romans kill him you can understand their confusion they ask at the end of verse 34 who is the son of man now jesus had already said he he he, it's him So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Light has been this major theme in the gospel of John. It started in John chapter 1 verse 4 and 5. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In John chapter 3, after he said God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, in verse 16 and verses 19 and 20, he says this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And then uh, John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And in John 9, 4 and 5, talking about the urgency. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus here is talking about light and darkness. And he is the light. He is the son of man. He is the light that is shining in the darkness. And there's a sense of urgency. He says in in verse 35 that the light light is among you for a little while longer. There's a sense of urgency. He says, walk while you have the light. Lest the darkness overtake you. There There is a darkness. There is an evil force in this world. That is trying to destroy us. It's in our flesh. It's in the world around us. And and then the whole spiritual realm as well. We're being attacked on three fronts. Darkness is encroaching upon all of us. And he says, while you have the light, believe in the light. This call to believe. 98 times in the Gospel of John, we we hear this word. Jesus now is saying, time is running out. Darkness is coming. Ultimately, he's, he's, he's referring to, you know, the, the six days from, from now when there's going to be darkness over the whole land when he's crucified. But he's, he's, he's speaking in a broader sense that, that time will eventually run out for you. You need to make a decision. And maybe you're here today and you're like the crowd. You're like, unless I get this, like, unless I get this question answered, I can't become a follower of Jesus. For them, it had to do with this eternal reign, but with... A crucifixion in the middle? How does that that work? For you, it might be something different. It might be something to do with sexual ethics. It might be something to do with the history of of Christianity and and how different Christian nations have behaved in the past. For you, it might be reconciling science and, and religion. You might have questions, but you just need to understand that if questions are holding you back from following Jesus Christ, you need to hear what he says here. Because we come from the understanding that I need to fully get it, and then I'll believe. But that's not really what believing means. It's not I understand it, and then I believe. It actually works the other way in following Jesus. It's I believe, and then I understand it. Now, I'm not talking about blind faith. Jesus describes himself as a light. He had already shown them a fair amount of things. I mean, he had just raised the dead. That's what got the whole crowd together in the first place. So he's saying, listen, you may not have all of the answers right now. It's all going to become less than a week. It's all going to be clear to everyone when he's resurrected. But he's telling them, don't let your hesitations and your questions stop you from having faith. Based on the light that has been shone on your life, make a decision. Are you going to follow him? Or are you not? This whole section right here, Jesus calls the hour. This is his moment. And for some of you, this, this is your hour. For some of us, you're, you are a follower of Jesus already, but you're, you've come to an hour of, of suffering. Suffering. And it's time for you, like Jesus, at this hour to say, you know what, God, just glorify your name. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know what you're doing. But I just pray that you would bring glory to your name. For others of you, this is your hour to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, to be all in. Yeah, there's still que- We all still have questions. But based on what has been shown to you thus far, based on the light that you have received, will you step forward to continue to walk in the light or will you foolishly persist in the darkness? This is your hour. Make a decision to follow him. Make a decision to live for his glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we Pray right now that light would triumph over darkness, that the light of your glory would shine in our lives. Lord, I pray for those who are walking through dark seasons, that the hour that they find themselves in right now is so painful, is so difficult, is so confusing, Lord. I pray, God, that you would be glorified in those situations, that your light would shine in the midst of the darkness. And God, I pray especially for those who are here who are not yet following Jesus. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would allow light to shine in the darkness, light to expose sin so that it could be confessed, light to reveal the glory of the Savior so that he can be believed in and trusted in, and light to move forward in a life that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. God, help us to uh, respond, Lord, rightly, whatever hour we may find ourselves in. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand.